Hey lovelies, before we get started, I wanted to remind you of all the different ways you can get your hands on one of my designs. Impact Fashion is a line of size-inclusive, modest clothing available in sizes 2 through 28. I personally design and pattern every single piece in the collection so that it is fitted to perfection and every single piece runs the same. That means that once you know your size, that is your size in every single piece in the collection. Pretty cool, no? You could shop the collection online at impactfashionnyc.com. Shipping is totally free in the U.S. and the return policy is, if I do say so myself, better than Amazon. You have 30 days to make a decision and don't even have to pay return shipping or any sort of annoying restocking fee. Impact Fashion can also be found at the address at American Dream Mall. The address is a curated, modest department store and definitely worth a visit if you are not an online shopping type of person. The American Dream Mall is located right next to the Meadowlands Sports Complex in New Jersey, and to get to the address, you're going to want to park in Lot C, Level 3. Make a left when you walk in, and you'll see the address on your right. I'm always happy to chat, whether that's to answer your sizing questions or just get to know each other better. Find me on Instagram and TikTok at impact.fashion.nyc or on WhatsApp status at 516-953-9391. You can also email me. It's rifky, R-I-V-K-Y, at impactfashionnyc.com. Enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rick Gitz, but on today's show, I sit down with the host of Jewish Money Matters to discuss exactly that, money. She shares how the 2008 recession led her to re-examine her whole relationship with money, why it's so uncomfortable to talk about money, and how to properly handle money in your relationships. I get the feeling that Yael Trush is someone who enjoys taboo topics, which is part of the reason, aside from her professional degrees and personal experience and all of that, that she is just so well positioned to tackle the question of money, particularly as it relates to Jewish life and thought. I, what was I like as a little kid? I was shy, actually. Um, I don't think I'm a shy person. I'm more of an introverted person. Um, I was a very observant person. I was kind of, I could relate better to adults than to children. I'm kind of an old soul. And I always, as a child, was a little bit like that. I'm an only child, and that might have to do with that. I spent a lot of time with adults. (laughs) And I was a person who went very deep in their relationships, meaning like I had very, very close friendships. And I was, you know, I was social, I had a very vibrant social life, but I knew that there was depth and meaning in certain relationships. I didn't have to have like, everybody needed to be my friend kind of thing, you know? Um, So I actually, it's cute that you asked me that because I had a really, really nice childhood. I grew up in Puerto Rico and I loved it. (laughs) I loved being in the beach. I loved being in the boat. (laughs) It was a very nice, sunny, happy um, life. <laughs> Tell me about growing up in Puerto Rico. Was your family like, you know, I know that like you are Orthodox now. Did you grow up Orthodox? Was there? I did what? not. I did not. I had a beautiful life there. I left when I was 17. I went to college in Boston at Tufts University and I had a beautiful experience there. Uh, my, my 
interest in Yiddish, I was there, there, I was always a very spiritual person talking about that intuitive old soul. There was something about me that was always the joke in my house was like, and my family was like, Oh, she's going to be the nun of the family, which was like, <laughs> what? Like, meaning it was just like, she's just like a religious person. Right. Babe. Um, and you know, I was very spiritual, very, very spiritual, but we weren't really observant. And then when I went to college, I started exploring a little bit more. And then as I become, as I moved on um, through my life, I lived in Manhattan after college. And then when I moved to Miami, no, I moved to Argentina and I always was searching. I was really, really searching for spirituality. And thank God I was searching, I guess, eventually it led me to the right place. And um, in Miami, in my early 20s, 20s after living in Argentina, um, I really, really took it upon myself to start like a more serious journey of keeping Shabbat and, you know, cashing my apartment and making all these hard choices of, you know, telling your boss, not only that I'm leaving early on Friday, but also, oh, there's a holiday this Wednesday, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's one that you've never heard of. Right. Exactly. It's definitely one you never heard of. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that was an interesting journey, hard journey. I also had to go do my, ma at that point, you, at that point, I'd become really committed to my Judaism and I had already applied to grad school to get my MBA at NYU. I had a full scholarship to go to NYU and I was like, I'm not doing this. Like, I, I don't know if I want to leave and like do this by myself. And my rabbi and my rabbitson said, oh, yes, you are. Like, we finish what we start, and you have a mission to accomplish there. You're going to be able to do this. You're going to New York City. You're going to be absolutely fine. You're going to continue in your journey. And that's exactly what happened. And it was uh, the best thing that I did go get my MBA, and I did continue becoming, being an observant woman and, and becoming even stronger. And yeah, then after that, I got married. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't hard to find Jews in New York. Like yeah, finding no, a community it, will probably wasn't difficult. It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's something to be said for, you know, surrounding yourself with the right people and, 100%. Um, and you know, and everything that goes on with that. So you get your MBA and you said, you know, you, you meet your husband and everything. What did you think you were going to like be when you grew up? You know, what did you think that you were huh. going to do? Um, and, and talk to me about how your career has kind of yeah. progressed. It's very interesting that you asked me that question and you asked the child question because I am, I was the typical child who didn't know what I would be when I grow up. My very close friends, most of them were like, you know, there's like, there's two thirds of the population who we just like figure things out and follow the breadcrumbs and we figure it out as we go. Right. And then there's like a third of the population from the moment they're like, pick up a pencil they know they're going to be architects right like my best friend was like that to this day she is an architect she always knew she was going to be an architect she's an artist like you know it's, it's i had friends like that i was the girl who had many talents i didn't know that there weren't like these radiant talents i didn't know what those talents really could accomplish they weren't the standard you know box like okay so so i thought i was going to become a doctor so when i started at tufts i went into a pre-med program but then I realized that's not for me. I ended up studying economics, which I found fine, fascinating. I ended up studying international relations as well. By the time I went to get my MBA, the reality is, Rifki, that I had been in investment banking and in venture capital, and I knew deep down in my soul that this was not for me. Hmm. I knew the lifestyle wasn't for me, the, the type of work. There was something that was missing. I was much more 
more of a person who can relate to people, can communicate deep ideas, deep concepts. I was great in relationship management with clients. Like when I got sent to Argentina on the client management side of very big multi-million dollar investment banking deals. And I got sent there because I shined in that, right? And it was just, I knew there was something there. So in my head, I was like, you know what I really want to do? Maybe I will do private client money management services, right? Because I was mm -hmm. in the banking world. And because I also had this very creative side, I loved art. I love beauty. One of my core values is beauty, actually. Everything, like there's, you know, and I was, I said, I'm going to manage clients art collection. Like imagine how niche that is. That is like a very, very niche. I love the specificity there. Yeah, yeah, it was like such a niche in personal finance. And I thought that was it, right? And I, even when I was applying to grad school, I was looking into art management programs and MBAs. And I did a ton of research and all the research, all the, all the people who advised me were even like gallery owners, for example. And they all said, no, 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 go for the MBA. And I went for the MBA at NYU specifically because I could do classes in the art management program, mm. which is one of the top in the nation, because I thought I'm going to work for the Met. And then I'm going to, I'm not, I'm like, I, I thought I'm, I had it all planned and that didn't turn out to be, but it's very interesting that I always knew that there was something that was about me that was about educating, about relating with people, about more in the communicating communication piece. Yes, it was related to money, but there was like something more than that. There was also a very feminine aspect. I was always a very girly girl, very feminine girl. So now I look at all these pieces and I see it. Like it all makes sense with that child who was so girly and was so deep and so sensitive and, and like there was and, and and who also was also very practical and like the practicalities of life. So that's all to tell you I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. I went into that MBA program. I still knew I do not want to get out of here with a consulting job or an investment banking job. And, you know, a part of me felt like I'm failing this on so many levels because I think maybe this niche is going to work out for me. But the truth is at this point, Rifki, I also was becoming, as I told you, I was observant. And MBA programs are very, very intense, very right. intense. Okay. And there's a lot of networking and you got to network and you got to go and do the thing and you got to be part of the group. And I was like, again, I'm not a superficial person. Like, I don't want to go to this networking and have drinks with you because like it has to be done. Right. Or schmooze with a person because I need to. To get that internship at IBM. I, I can't do that fake stuff. So there was a part of me that was like soul crunching inside the program. On the one hand, I love the education piece. On the other hand, it was just not, it was completely misaligned. So I still felt very much out of place and I still didn't know exactly what's going to be. So I actually graduated not having a job, which is in an MBA program, it's considered kind of like, what is wrong with you? Mm -hmm. You know, um, and, um, you know, that led me into an interesting journey because I ended up going to Israel that summer because I didn't have a job. And then I got a job at APAC and then I met my husband and I moved to China. So like very interesting pieces. But, moved to um, China. I didn't know that part. What oh, were you yeah, doing in yeah. China? I got married and my husband was living in China at the time. He was going back and forth between Israel and China. He's American, but he was living between Israel and China because he worked, he, he worked for an Israeli company in China. And he had also become religious. Anyway, 
when he came to meet me, um, we had a friend who we wrote for a very long time, these incredible emails and whatever. Eventually, it was, it was like, we have to meet. When he came to meet me and we really got, it got serious. Like, I totally thought like he was done with this China piece because he thought he was done with this China piece. Mm -hmm. So we moved to Israel after our wedding. And after the first year of marriage, which we took it kind of like a honeymoon year, we weren't working. We were like tapping into our savings and he was learning and I was learning. It was beautiful. I had my first baby. And then what happened is we got a job offer, an incredible job, job offer in China who, that came through the same person who introduced us. I mean, all the signs were there and we decided that we're moving. And that was where, that was where his community was. I'd been there before during that first year of marriage. I'd been there twice already. So we knew it was a, I knew it was a place for my husband and for myself. We fit in and we had a beautiful three and a half years. I had my daughter there. I went with my baby and then I had my first daughter there. It was like a beautiful experience. And eventually we decided to move back to the States, but China was a big part of our life. That is so cool. And I did not know that about you. It's it's funny. I was actually, this is reminding me of something that I actually heard. Um, I'm a big fan of how I built this, the Guy Raz podcast, if you're familiar. Yeah. And, um, he was actually interviewing, I am forgetting. Oh, I think it, it's um the Nas Daily guy who's also Israeli. Oh, yes, was, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, okay, so he was interviewing him on um on the How I Built This Lab episodes, and they were talking about um like which type of companies Nas chooses to work with. And um, and you know, guy was asking him how he makes, you know, because they work with governments also. So he was saying, like, would you work with Russia? Because we know that there's so much aggression there, and they they uh, uh jail journalists and things like that. And um, and Nas was like, that's such a wonderfully American question. Like you have such an American perspective on mm. these things because he was saying it. Guy was like suggesting that you should only be working with private companies, not with governments. Like, was mm. that something you would consider? And he's like, well, you're coming from a part of the world where private governments and private companies and governments are separate. And that just doesn't exist in a lot of parts of the world. And I just, right. I, it, you just reminded me of this, like saying you, you have yeah. such a wonderfully international perspective on so many different you know, I've I'm lived many places. I skipped a few. <laughs> <laughs> and if we had more time, I would make you go through them, but but I don't want to get stuck on this. But that's such a wonderfully global perspective, oh, particularly sure. I, I can imagine that that comes, you know, in, in handy with the work that you do now, which is yeah. all around money and yes. how people feel about their money and how people manage their money and everything that goes into that. Talk to me about, you know, tell everyone a little bit about what you do now and how your perspectives around money were shaped by your experiences. Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, that experience in China um, takes me back to the recession of 2008, 2009. And wow. that's when my first real wake-up call with money came, okay? Because even though I had the education, the training, the work experience, the reality is in my personal life, money was not something that I actually had a very healthy relationship with. I was the type that the piles of credit card bills and other bills would sit at my desk. I would ignore. Uh, I, I had, I had just, I, I assumed Prince Charming one day was going to come and save me, and you know he was going to take care of this, and I, I don't have to relate to this, right? I had a very, very kind of like dysfunctional relationship with money. When the recession came in two thousand and eight, was the first time that I actually had to put on my big skirt on and say, one minute because it actually impacted my husband's line of work. And it I actually started feeling the tension in my marriage. And now Rifki, when I decided to get married, first of all, I had been to, through a spiritual journey. I'd become religious. I come from a parent, from parents who got divorced. I knew 
that when I was getting married, I was in forever. Like I was committed, just as committed as I was to Hashem, I was committed to this relationship. Now I said to myself, I am never going to be a statistic. I am not going to let this thing come and destroy an incredibly wonderful relationship. So I had a big wake up call and I realized that the money piece was actually not the hard piece at all. The personal finance concepts, money, money, money management concepts are things that I could understand and relate to. So what was happening, what really moved the needle in my life was the Jewish wisdom that comes to inform my relationship with money. And that memo I had missed. Now, Unfortunately, that's not unique to me. It's not a consequence of me having become religious later in life. What I have found is across the board, we have all missed the memo on how Torah, how Judaism asks us to think, speak, and behave with money, that there is actually a distinct way that we Jews relate to money. And so when it came to those pieces, I could tell you three in particular, when it came to, let's say, for example, giving, right? Well, we used to give, even generously, you could say, my husband and I, but now there's a recession, we can't give, right? Well, that's a very personal finance paradigm. And in personal finance, we save, invest, spend, and then we give. In Judaism, that paradigm, we flipped it on its head. We give first. We're always givers, right? So when I started understanding that, understanding, okay, this is a piece that evidently we missed, right? And we are all familiar with the concept of tzedakah, but excuse me, what I'm talking about here is something called tithing. It's called something called meister, giving 10% always of your after-tax earnings okay it's 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 above chair it's something different than charity charity includes that and many other things like your time your energy all other resources so that's one piece what about the piece rifki of reliance on the god the source of the money right. because here we had this assumption and maybe you're familiar with this like well I'm a woman of faith. What do you mean? Like, I, I keep kosher. I keep shots. I go to the mikvah. I cover my hair. Of course I trust in Hashem. When I really started learning and understanding what trust, meaning reliance, exclusive reliance on the one above, the source of everything, including your money, really is, I was like, oh, I get it. No, no, no. I totally am not a, a person who trusts. Like, there's no way. I'm not at that. I'm not there yet. This is, I understood this an area to work on, right? The idea of really getting clear on our values. What are our values, right? What are the values that the Torah has given us a blueprint of what needs to be the filter through which we make every single decision, including financial decisions? So when I come to look at how I'm going to spend my money, is it values aligned? Did I ever sit with my husband and say, what are our core values? And is our money advancing those values, right? So these are very, very important Jewish principles that really for me is what started moving the needle completely. Now, professionally, what happened is when I moved back to America, I had started going on this journey and it was going incredibly well. Like this was, this literally changed my financial life and my marriage. Now, I was a speaker. I was a writer. You know me from my old podcast, Jewish Latin Princess. I used to go on stages all the all over the world. I still do. I write for many publications, etc. I found that the women in the audience always struggled with four pain points. And the pain points were 
their relationship with their husband, marriage and intimacy, their relationship with their kids, relationship with food and body, right? Self-image mm -hmm. and body and relationship with money. Now, I noticed this. I also noticed that there wasn't anybody talking about it. And yet here I was, a person who not only had the professional training, but also the personal experience to understand that the missing piece to that professional training is Judaism. How could I not talk about it? And it was so scary, Rifti. <laughs> so, so scary. But here we are today, Baruch Hashem, seven years into Jewish Money Matters podcast, an incredible, incredible group coaching program called God Wants You to Be Rich, exclusive for women, um, and, and transformational on so many levels. It's been a journey of a lot of bravery and courage, and at, at the same time, deeply rewarding and satisfying and humbling, knowing that this is my mission. This is what I was put here to do. And somebody um, just wrote to me, Al, when I watch your videos, I literally see a person who is doing what they are meant to be doing. Isn't it so and great to, to see when that lines it, up? But, but, but Rifki, because I was always looking for the thing. I was that girl who never knew what will I do with my life? I shined at, I excelled at every job. I got promoted. I got bonuses. I got sent to Argentina to China. You name it. I got really big jobs. But it wasn't the thing. What am I doing? It wasn't like, like what, what is it? Where is it that Yael wants needs to shine? Where is it that I'm going to be of the most service and the most impact? Baruch Hashem, I tell you every day, thank God. I thank God every day that I'm finally in my element. I love to see that. And I have to say, it's so fantastic seeing someone, like you said, in your element who really you know, who, who really knows what they're talking about and who's really doing what they're supposed to do. So let's dive in. Why do we hate talking about money? Why is no. it so <laughs> uncomfortable? This, I got to say like, and, and I totally fall into this category, discussing money makes me deeply uncomfortable mm -hmm. to the point, by the way, that like I am actually very careful, both from like a privacy perspective and also from just like a kind of way mm -hmm. that like I, it, it like I will be very careful that like I, especially if I'm around people who maybe I know like make less than my husband and I do, like I will be very careful to not emphasize that I have certain things or like, I'm actually pretty mindful that like, I don't show, or I very, I very, very rarely show like my real jewelry online. Cause like, mm -hmm. I just don't want that to be out there. Not that I'm dripping in diamonds anywhere, but like it just all of that kind of thing. Why is it so uncomfortable to just be like, to, to talk about money and to bring all this up? Yeah. Yeah. And I think you hit on two important things here. I think the last thing that you mentioned is actually something that is very, very good. And that that sense of modesty and that sense of humility, that this is not here something that we have to serve ourselves and to flaunt and, you know, get admiration for, because it's not ours. It's something that's a blessing that God is bestowing on me, on, on, on us. So that's, that's beautiful. Now, what I want to now turn is the piece where when it's coming from a place of shame, when it's coming from a place of, oh, this is icky, right? Like that discomfort that you're you're talking about that I'm so familiar with, most people in the audience are probably very familiar with. You ask, why is it? So number one, I'm going to give you very practical and then I'm going to give a little bit more spiritual. Number one, yes, it's uncomfortable because we actually never expected that money that we project so many emotions onto money. We 
thought mm. that money is numbers and spreadsheets. And it's like you're running and you hit a, a fence and you don't know that the fence was had electricity and you get an electric shock. And it's like, wait, wait what? This is uncomfortable. Like, I, I thought this was just math. No, it's not math. You know why? Because you have a relationship with it. You have a whole story that you've built throughout your entire life where you've projected tons of emotions on it. And it has to do with your earliest money memory. And it has to do with your home of origin, what you saw your parents say and do. And it has a tremendous amount to do with the fact that we have been for thousands of years absorbed in a world of exile where just like we've adopted modes of thinking and behaving about all different sorts of areas in our lives, like intimacy, marriage, the way we dress, the way we do business, the way we eat, et cetera, et cetera, that are nothing to do with the Jewish way. They're nothing to do with the blueprint that God set out for us in our lives. The same has happened with money. Very often, we do not think, speak, or behave like Jews should. We don't have the proper Jewish mindset. We think money's icky. Money's something to shy away from. Money's just, ugh, it's going to make me crass. And Judaism comes in and says, what is that all about? Money? You have a promise of wealth since Avram Avinu, your father. You came out of Egypt with wealth. What was all that wealth for, by the way? If not to build a home for God in the world. And what are all, all of us in this audience doing every single day, if not exactly that? What are we meant to be doing in this physical world, if not literally revealing godliness? And we cannot do that without physicality, money being the epitome of physicality. So money actually is not like a necessary evil, like, well, okay, so I'll deal with it because I have to deal with it. No, no, no. In Judaism, money is part and parcel of your mission. It's part and parcel of the collective mission of the Jewish people. The messianic vision happens in this world, the physical world. It happens when you put your beautiful Shabbos clothes on, your beautiful Shabbos table, your flowers, when you inspire other people, when you give tzedakah, when you have a beautiful home, when you buy kosher food, when you put mezuzot in your home. This is how we transform the world, where you engage in business honestly, when you pay your employees. All of this happens in the physical world. It is a means for us to create impact and change the world. Now, once we internalize that, the paradigm is completely different. Then, of course, I don't reject it. Of course, I don't feel icky about it. I'm an ambassador of that resource. I'm a humble servant. And now Hashem is saying, I want you to have it. I need you to have it because that's why I put you in the physical world. And just like you and I wouldn't say, you know what? God gave me a body, but eh, I'm not going to take care of it, right? I'm not going to, I'm not going to. I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to bathe. I'm not going to eat properly. We wouldn't do that. We can't reject our body. The body is the house of the soul. In order for the soul to do what it needs to do here, it needs a body, right? So in Judaism, we don't say reject your body, reject your body, right? We don't reject physicality. So in the same vein, Hashem says, 
I'm giving you this physical resource because I need you to use it in that physical world where I sent your soul so that you can make that physical world into a dwelling place for God, into a, a place of light, right? So once we internalize this, it's like, oh my goodness, of course, now I can have a healthy relationship with it. Now I can talk about it. Now I can be confidently managing it. I don't have to ignore my statements. I don't have to ignore looking at how much money's in the bank. I don't have to ignore the fact that I should be putting money away, that I should be investing, that I should be doing all these responsible things. Why? Only because, going back to that trust piece that I said before, God said so. Not because I rely on the stuff, right? I don't rely on my business. I don't rely on my material world. It's just because God says, go play in that playing field and have fun. Be connected above. Go do it. Go do it. Do all that stuff. Do all that money management stuff. Don't rely on it, but go do it because we've got to keep the alibi. we got to keep the concealment so that you can do the revelation. So the whole thing shifts. Do you see what I'm saying? I hear the shift. And that sounds good and fine and wonderful if you have money. But what if you don't? Not everybody okay. has. Right. One, one second, one second. I would take that and and I had this conversation in my I'm running a, a Jewish money makeover challenge right now, actually for free. And I was just having this 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 same conversation. When somebody comes and says, "What if I don't have?" The question is, first of all, let's open the Sharbitachon. Let's open the gate of trust, right? Every single day and understand what's happening here, okay? The first line is the foundation of my entire financial system has to be bitachon. It has to be trust. Okay, otherwise I'm building a structure in a very weak foundation, it's going to collapse. The second thing is, whenever I am put in a situation of challenge, whatever that challenge might be, very often we have the tendency to go start pointing fingers outward. And what I'm gonna say is hard to swallow, okay? But the tendency is, it's the school's fault, it's the community, it's the government, it's the financial crisis, it's the cost of tuition, it's this and that. And what I like to propose is the harder but Jewish option, because we are never victims to circumstance, ever. So yes, those external things might be there, but where does God want me to go? What does God want me to do with that? And I have to look inward and say, what is this challenge trying to get out of me? Is it that I really have to internalize what exclusive trust is? Is it that I really have to actually now starting start char charging my clients and get out of my comfort zone and look for different income streams? Is it that I really now have to start looking at my numbers with my spouse and really getting clear on what my values are and making sure that I'm financing those? Like there's so many things that if we really go deep, right? We start seeing Oh, I am responsible. I, I, the buck stops with me, not just what, related to money with any challenge, right? Those external circumstances might be there, but who is sending the circumstances? It's not the schools. It's not the government, guys. It's not. It's God Almighty. So once we understand- I'm going to push oh, back on that because I, yeah, I, so hear this, I hear this idea of basically taking responsibility for where you're spending your money, right? If taking responsibility- oh, Not just spending, everything related every, to money. Right, right? right exactly. But yeah. let's let's talk in this, like, in this context of someone who doesn't have, right? So I have X amount of bills per month and my income does not meet my expenses. And mm -hmm. I get that, you know, there's something to be said for looking at the, ex the expenses that you have and seeing where you can cut back and all of that and maybe thinking of ways to increase your income- I get it. But at yes. the same time, Orthodox life is really expensive. 
A hundred percent. My favorite types of videos to watch online are people who are like, I'm going to show you how I feed my family of six for $55 in groceries. And I'm like, no, you <laughs> I, don't. You no, buy. I don't know how they do it. I don't, I don't buy it's it. It's not kosher <laughs> ingredients is what they exactly. do. That's what they do. You know, buy, <laughs> buy a pound of kosher chicken for $9.99 and then come and talk. Excuse like, me, $12.99, Rusty. I don't live in New York. I live in New York. It's not, you know, I just bought cutlets for $9.99. And like, and at the end of the day, right? Kosher food is expensive. We're sending our kids to private school. And tuition is expensive. And camps are expensive. And Snia's clothing is expensive. And wigs are expensive. Everything is expensive. Yes. To a certain certain extent, sometimes the math just doesn't work. And so, yes, yes, we have to incorporate our bitachon and our trust in God into all aspects of our life. And this is obviously a big aspect of our life. But, you know, saying to someone who just doesn't have well, you know, you just need to trust in God and see what happens. No, I, so first of all, first of all, I would never, I'm not saying that we go and tell our friend who's struggling, God forbid, that's not Judaism. Okay. Somebody's struggling. You roll up your sleeves, you open your checkbook and you help. Okay. But if no, I'm saying for us to change perspective. Okay. So number one, yes, Jewish life is very expensive, but you know what I like to say? It's also very valuable. It comes with a high ticket price. I'm getting sex with Avenue. That's what I'm getting. That is Judaism. No arguments okay? there. It's I totally agree. The best. Okay. It's the best. So we have to understand that if there's something that is so precious and so valuable, God is not going to ask us to keep it if he's not going to finance it. Now, I know what I'm asking is a very deep perspective that doesn't change in 30 minute, 30 second sound bites on a podcast. Okay. It is work, Rifki. I have had to do that work. And it is dealing with the fact that we have to make those difficult phone calls and call the board and say, I can't make you tuition payments for the next three months. Right. And, has, and trust in Hashem that he will send that child to school. Right. These are hard things but this is the work, okay? And look at, well, am I actually giving my Meister the way it's supposed to be, right? These are important things, right? Because many people say, oh, well, I'm not gonna give Meister until I have an emergency fund. And I'm like, where'd you come up with that idea, right? Or, right. you know, well, I give or, the, or I overgive, right? Like I had a conversation with somebody who like, they're not doing very well financially. And her, her, she called me about business advice and the business is not really making money and they're really, really struggling. And one of the things she said is, well, I also have a $250 donation that I make every week. I have a, a commitment to this charity. And I said, wait one second. So I, re- I want to revert back to what you said. So you mean you're you are pulling out of your business twenty five hundred dollars every week, right? And she's like, no, no, no. I'm telling you, I'm 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 barely breaking even. And I was like, so wait, didn't you just mention that you give a donation of two hundred and fifty dollars every week? That's not my sir, people. There is a minute that we under we need to understand what giving means in Judaism, right? There is and there are exact range. We should, we should specify that there are exact halachic guidelines around how much is too much, and and Ex- and if and exactly. if you're like really doing very poorly, you know when you shouldn't be giving and what amount you should be giving, and like talk exactly. to your rabbi about all those things. And that is, but that's important, Rifki. And it might seem to you so clear, but the majority of people I talk to 
don't realize that. And they're giving from a place of shame or they're not giving because they decided that they, they have a completely different paradigm like, like I used to have. Like I'll give when I'm, when I'm ready, right? When I can. They don't realize that there, there's a beautiful divine system at play that when we actually work the system and when we follow that there is a range of 10 to 20% of our after-tax income that we give to others, there is a guarantee from Hashem that we are going to have the 90%. Like Meiser is a guarantee. Bitachon is a guarantee. These things are things that we need to really work on. What tends to happen is we go work on everything else. I'm like, guys, it's not really about the budget. It's what's behind the fact that we can't stick to the budget. Let's work on that stuff, right? And then let's build the systems. So going back, yes, we have a tremendous amount of empathy and we have to help people who are struggling. And that's part of what we're doing. Why I'm saying, you know what? Go make more money. If you have a talent that you want to share with the world, why not sharing it? Why are you holding yourself back? I see this so much, Rifki. You might also see it on your show, right? So many, Hashem is like showering you with these blessings of talent and creativity. And then you're like, no, no, no. How could I? How could I? And I'm like, how could you not? How right. could you not? How are you depriving the world of your light that need your service that needs to help somebody else because your ego doesn't allow you for your eighth grade classmates to see that you have now this business right or whatever the the thing that's going on in the back of your head so there's just really i just want us to be aware that there's a very deep dynamics that are in play that i'd rather we look at all that stuff first not just first instead of spending time and energy blaming our husbands, our principles, the cost of kosher food. It's like, please, Hashem put all that there. These people did not put it. Look inwards. Let's go. You have so much potential. There's so much that can be changed here for the good. God is not giving this because he's whipping you. You want to, I want to, no, that's, that's not, that's not, that's not our God. That's not God, period. Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. The, no, it's certainly not any God that I want to have anything to do with. So exactly. <laughs> uh, it's, it's not my version. I'll put, I'll put that out there. You mentioned that your, you know, especially during the recession, that money was interfering in your marriage, that it was causing these kind of tensions there. Talk to me about money and relationships. Cause what I found, yeah. and I'm curious what your feeling is on this. I find that the couples that struggle with this in their, in their marriage tend to be people who value different things. Talk to me about how money in, in relationships um, yeah. plays so, out. So usually, so usually with that, it's a little bit more deeper than that. And we go back to the thing that you asked at the beginning, how come it's so hard to communicate about money? The reality is we have to understand that in a marriage, in a relationship, we both come in with two very different money stories. And we... If have, we haven't done the work, we don't actually know what our money story is right. until we actually sit and really explore it with a professional. We don't know what that is. We don't know what our husband's is. And until we actually start exploring what that is and vulnerably sharing that with our spouse and allowing him to also share parts of his story and we start relating to some of it, some of it we can't relate, but guess what? We start creating empathy. Now we start understanding each other. Now, when my husband says no, I'm not turning into the seven-year-old girl who 
can't handle a no because of an experience she had seeing her parents fight, seeing her, whatever it was, right? And when my husband says, oh, um, maybe we can, maybe we can um, make this payment first, I'm not now hearing, he's trying to disciple me, he doesn't get, right? We now start understanding each other now. Everything I've said is fine, but how do we get there? I'll tell you exactly how we get to that place of empathy. And it ties back to the idea that we have to be active agents of Hashem's resource of money. We set up a time and space in our marriage where we actually talk about our money. We don't talk about our money when you're putting the baby in the bath and mm -hmm. you have to send a, a, a quote to a client and your mother-in-law's on the phone. And then your husband asks about the plumbing bill. And in five seconds, this turned into World War III. And you're like, what just happened? And that's what everybody starts doing. We go through our lives and we have these financial conversations ad, ad hoc, like whenever, whatever. No, 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 no. You know how our sages say, take 30 minutes a day and talk to your spouse about your children. Be mindful, be intentional. Be intentional. Sit with your husband 32 minutes to an hour if you don't have very little children, maybe you can do it once a week. That's the stage of life that I'm in. But if it's hard once a week, once every two weeks, or sure once a month, it has to be regularly scheduled on your calendars. And you jot down an agenda of what's going to be in the next money date, what needs to come up. And you know what happens, Rifki? The emergencies decrease because suddenly there's no emergency because it's something that on Sunday's money date, we're going to approach it. So it doesn't matter that the school is calling for this urgent payment. It's not urgent. On Sunday, we're going to deal with it and we're going to see, can we make it this week or can, does it need to be delayed till camp tuition goes out? Oh, we're now in communication. We know there's a flow of money. Money comes in, money goes out, right? What tends to happen is there's no communication, right? Nobody's doing anything as they say in, in Hebrew, dafka, nobody's doing anything to hurt anybody intentionally, right? She's just doing what she needs to do to manage the household and whatever she does. And he's doing whatever he does. But there's no communication and there's no understanding of the flow of the in and out of the money. They're not making decisions together. There's no real transparency. And in Judaism, we're going not for power of control or control. We're going for connection, transparency, being united in managing this resource that God has given you so that you can both fulfill your mission and the mission of this family. So isn't that a beautiful thing that now you should say, of course, I want to have these money dates. Of course, I want to sit with my spouse and you make it fun and you make it personal. And not every money date has to include spreadsheets and numbers. You can go on a walk. You can, I always bring my chocolate because my husband and I are obsessed with <laughs> dark chocolate, right? And, and you know, that's part of our personality. We always have dark chocolate in our money dates and money dates are, not always about numbers. They are very much about going back and revisiting what are those values. And by the way, you mentioned things that maybe one spouse values over the other. What happens is when we really go deep and we really start understanding each other, things that we might, beauty is a value of mine. I'm not talking about beauty, about makeup, but I'm saying like, like there is something like spiritual beauty, physical beauty. Right? Do you think my husband's into that? No, my husband's a very simple guy. He dresses. He's not ever going to, you know, like he's not going to, nah. But he appreciates that. He understands where it's coming from. Then it also becomes part of this is. So he knows that on certain level, when we're going to do a bar mitzvah, there's going to be a spiritual beauty that's going to be explored. And it's going to be reflected because it's the mark of his wife, for example, right? 
And that doesn't mean extravagance. I'm talking about two different things. But we have to understand that in a marriage, we are working towards something together. We're building together. And the money is the resource that God has given us to build that life together. So we're going for these money dates in order to create union, in order to create transparency so that we're both in the same page and we can make financial decisions that actually advance those values. And we're constantly pushing ourselves and saying, you know what? Like when the pandemic came, for example, I went in a panic. I was like, we got to fix this part of the house and that part of the house because all the kids are going to be home. I have kids out of town. Everybody's going to be here. This is crazy. I work from home. My husband works from home. And we went on our money date and we were walking outside. It was a beautiful day. And we're walking outside and we asked ourselves the question, if we invest on the house right now, is that going to compromise our ability to finance the other things that are of the essence, namely tuition for our children, even though the children were not going to be in school, namely healthcare, tzedakah, Passover was coming up, right? These things were all of the essence. It's not that having a beautiful home or was not important, but if we, if, and if the answer to this question, if the answer is that, yes, these things could be compromised in this crazy situation where we don't know where this is going, then the answer to remodeling or fixing is going to be no, because we can forgo that temporarily. It's not that it's not important, it's that at that moment, it doesn't take precedence. Now, two, three years down the line, we're always we're asking the same questions, but the answer might be different, right? Because you're, point, you're reframing may- it, meaning instead of it being a conversation of like, let's say, I love this idea of remodeling the house, right? Because in a lot of ways, that could be important. It could be something that's necessary. It's also really expensive. So when you're, it's not a matter of, oh, you can't have a new kitchen, let's say. It's a matter of, is a new kitchen more important than whatever else is going on. And once it, then it's, and also let's say it's, well, no, we can't do the kitchen now. Then the answer is not, oh, whatever. We just don't have enough to do the kitchen. The answer is I'm choosing my tuition, my pace over the kitchen. And there's a- You nailed it. There's a lot of agency in that. Exactly, because we're active agents. We're not passive and we're not victims. And then a few years down the line, guess what happens? The conversation keeps coming up. Right. And the and the questions we're asking are the same, but the answers are different. Now it's a good time to remodel into that guest bedroom because Shalom Bayit and I mean, I'm sorry, hospitality hosting hosting is so important to our family. Right? right. And maybe two years ago, that was not the case. But now it comes now it comes up, bumps up in the priority. So now we start seeing that we're constantly doing this beautiful dance where the financial decisions are not mindlessly happening. Because right. we can't go, we can't treat our body mindlessly. You have to take care of it. We can treat our money mindlessly. And here I'm saying, let's stop giving it negative attention, which is what most of us do. We are, it consumes total real estate in our, in our mind. It takes up our entire right. brain, anxiety, negativity. We're worried. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's give it its proper space and time in with with beauty, with with actually appreciation, with wanting to do this because we know God wants us to relate to it, to have a relationship with it. He wants to give it to us. He wants us to make financial decisions based on our value system. So it's actually it's a complete change in the way we relate to this, not just from a mindful mindness and mindfulness perspective, from a mindset perspective, from a very practical perspective. How right. we are actually going to allocate our money this week, this month, this year. 
Right. And and it's about making those decisions together. And Do doing you, those trade-offs. We're always making trade-offs, right, Rifki? We, right. And I, I mean, that's what life is. That's what adulting exactly. is. Exactly. <laughs> Even if you have a billion dollars in the bank, you're trading this yet for that yet. I don't know what your trade your trade-offs are, but there's always going to be a trade-off, right? We have to do that together with love, with appreciation, not ugh, because, not none of that. Right. None of that. Do you find that couples that have less money fight about money more or is it like kind of regardless mm. of the income amount? No, no, I, I, I haven't found that that is necessarily the case. Um, I've seen the problems across the board, um, across the board. For example, you know, I worked with a couple in a very, very, um, on paper, might good might sound well. On paper, when you look at the numbers, not so much. But you know, she doesn't work. She doesn't make an income. But he um, makes over half a million dollars. Oh wow! Um, and they were having tremendous amount of problems and not really building wealth. Like there were a month or two, you know, like they, they were rich on paper, but they weren't building wealth. They weren't really doing things with their money that they felt really, um, and it was affecting the relationship with the children, the way they were raising the children. And there were a lot of things going on. And one of the things, just to give you a bit of a thing that was very interesting that we discovered is, you know, she was an orphan at a very early age. And she was raised by her grandmother and there were a handful of friends of her mother who took it upon herself on her mother's death. And I think the, the father had died even before the mother that they would take care of this child. And so she told me, you know what, Yael, I grew up, I had everything I wanted. You couldn't tell I was an orphan. I never lacked anything. And it was very interesting because in adulthood, money is like, she it cannot stay in her pocket she can't mm. stop spending it and so we realized do you realize that what what's happening here is the whole time is i don't want the money i don't want the stuff i just want my mother i just want my mother so now as an adult you keep getting all this abundance but you can't keep it you can't build the wealth because you just need it to just go because it's it's not your mother, right? So there was so much going on there. That's just to give you an example of, you know, how, and, and there were other layers that were going on here, but to give you an example that you could have a very, very, you know, on paper, you could be making a lot of money and you could still ha be having this lack of understanding where you don't understand each other, where the money's not going to places that you really want it to be. And again, she would to say, but I want us to have this saved up for the wedding, but I want us to have investments, but I want my husband to have to work so hard, blah, blah, blah. But she couldn't get there because she had to reject the money, right? She had to buy another thing and another thing and another thing, right? She's looking for something that the money is never going to give her. She's looking for her mother, right? Because she hasn't healed that part of herself, right? So in a nutshell, the truth is until we introduce God into the equation and really know that in a marriage, there is a third partner, it's Hashem. And when it comes to our relationship with money, it's something that Hashem wants us to have. This is not something that's a necessary evil. It's something that is part and parcel of our mission in the world. And therefore, it's part and parcel of your marriage, right? And we have to take it with joy and say, wow, what a bracha that now we together get to manage this part of our life. What a bracha that now we together get to manage the life of these children. And right, like these are the things, right? Um, I'm not equating money with children, but I want us to understand that just like we wouldn't neglect that area of our life, we don't neglect our, our financial life, right?
Right. So it's it's time that I think we all do a little bit of inner work and reframe all this and say, you know what? Yeah, I'm here to be an active agent of this resource. And I'm going to do these money dates with my husband. And I'm going to start building this consistency where we can get into this rhythm of healthy, open communication, where we can both work towards being in the same place, where now our children are going to see that money is unity, that money is something that we're joyful about, that we're not, right? They, You literally can change the entire legacy. You don't, just because you were raised a certain way and with a certain script, doesn't mean that now you're a victim of that and you have to give it to your children. You can rewrite your script. You can totally rewrite it. That's the whole, that's, that's exactly why you were giving that challenge. Well, now what are you going to do with it? Take ownership and let's rewrite the, the, your new story. What's going to be the story of you and your family and your husband? That is, that is a very solid kind of point. And I think that what this all really boils down to is what you said at the very beginning, this idea that like money is values. And if I I would almost argue that if you have trouble figuring out what you value, go look at what you're spending your money on. And that will tell you, you know, a hundred percent. Look how you, you, you can look at how you spend your time and your money. I can look at your calendar and I can look at your wallet, right? Your bank (laughs) statements. And I'll tell you, and unfortunately what happens is we assume that we are behaving according to what we think our values are. But if we actually looked at our calendar and our money and our bank statements, we might be surprised. So I always tell people financial statements are value statements. Well, let's make sure that they align. Financial statements are value statements, right? And we have to really go deep and say, what are my core values? And this is actually a very fun conversation to have with your spouse to start learning about each other. And what are the experiences that I had in my childhood and young adulthood that shaped my my uh, understanding of money. Did your father had a bankruptcy when you were 17? Did your parents always argue about money? Like what were the things that have shaped your minds? And you don't have to like just operate on that script. Go, go and share so that you can understand it. And then you can catch yourselves. One of the most beautiful things that can happen on a money date is that suddenly you're going, something happens and you go into this direction where you turn into this inner child, right? Person. And your husband says, wait, 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 wait. Remember, like, I'm not your father, the one who was, you know, <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah. And then you can laugh about it, right? right. Like, where is that? I'm sorry. Where is that coming from, right? Or you can say, time out. This is getting heated. Let's just continue this conversation next week. That's also good. That's also okay. What's not okay is to disengage, mm. is to reject, is to say, I'm not dealing with this. Right, because it does have-, have to be dealt with. But not only that it has to, that it's wonderful to, that we get to, that it's a bracha that we get to. It's not I raise my children because I have to. It's not I I get (laughs) enough sleep and I go exercise because I have to. No, because it's beautiful. It's wonderful. You, you know, it's it's, it's a pleasure. It's something that God wants you to do so that you can be your best self, right? Yeah, right. It's part of our mission. We don't just like, oh, no. And the same thing with work, right? Why are we not working in a, in, a, in, 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 a, in a capacity that really brings out our talents, right? When we go back to the gate of trust, those three components of where God wants us to find our livelihood. My goodness, if anybody had taught me these things, your nature, your inclination, and your tolerance, when we were all going to college, what a change, right? Instead right. of, oh, well, of course, I'm going to get the $30,000 signing bonus and then $75,000 when I'm only 21, you know, well, of course, I'm going to take the investment banking job. And then what, right? Then you woke up, wake up that one day and you said, there's nobody in this bank that I want to be like when I grow up. And then you're like, ooh, that's kind of like a big red flag. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, exactly I don't want happens. my boss's job. That's a problem. Right? 
that's yeah. a big red flag. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's definitely a, a good way to gauge if you like where you are in your in your work, by the way. Right? Uh, yeah. Would I want my boss's job if the answer is no, get out. Get out. I'll tell you something you can give your listeners, Rifki, regarding those money dates. I have 10 tips for money date success. And mm-hmm. they're at eltrush.com forward slash money date. Fantastic. And I'm going to include that link in the show notes. If somebody wants to learn more about you, benefit from your programs, where are we going? Yes. So right now the doors are open to my God wants you to be rich program. This is the only Jewish mindset and Jewish man. No, the only money mindset and money management program that is fundamentally based on a Jewish perspective out there for women. There is really nothing like there, like there that actually touches both areas, the mindset piece and the management piece, the personal finance, literacy, the fluency, the structures, all of that but completely grounded in Judaism and it's life-changing and the doors are open now at yaeltrush.com forward slash rich yaeltrush.com forward slash rich you can always find me on the podcast I'm there twice a week Mondays are interviews Friday I ask listeners questions you can always email me your questions and I'll give you uh, answers on the podcast at at yaeltrush you can DM me on Instagram DM me on LinkedIn I'm very accessible that's fantastic. And I'm going to link all of that in the show notes so that it's even more accessible. Thank I you. want to end off, Yael, with uh, this question that I love asking everyone because the answers are so varied and fun to listen to. But where in your life do you feel you've made the most impact? I have made the most impact. First, my children. But aside from that, really the life of Jewish women. Um, and I don't take that lightly. I don't I don't say it. I say it with a tremendous amount of humility and it is my it it is my pleasure and joy and like i told you before i feel a tremendous sense of responsibility and also humility that i have been given a voice an ability to communicate an ability to understand very deep concepts and bring them into very practical on a very practical level that jewish women connect to and I don't take that responsibility lightly. It's been a very impactful journey. I get messages literally every day of either how my programs have changed their lives, how my articles are impacting them, how listening to the podcast has changed their relationship with money, with their spout, with themselves, with God. I mean, it's, it's yeah, Baruch Hashem, thank God every day. That. Yes, that definitely sounds very fulfilling. Thank you so much for coming on today, Yael. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rifkin. and thank you for the beautiful, beautiful work that you're doing. Kola kavod. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Yael, her links are in the show notes. On last week's episode, I went solo to give an update on the Am Yisrael Chai line and to announce the new Am Yisrael Chai t-shirt. Listen to it wherever you're hearing this one. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of Impact Fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things that life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 28 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 19 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fetlin. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzquitz. Catch me on all the socials at impact.fashion.nyc. As always, here's to making an impact together. 
you've spent quite a bit of time listening to me and now it's my turn to listen to you. By just answering a few questions in a short listener survey, you can share feedback about show content you'd like to see in the future and help me shape Be Impactful into the best showcase of female voices out there. Even better, once you've completed the survey, you'll receive an exclusive code to shop impactfashionnyc.com as my thanks. The survey is short and sweet and will help me keep bringing you content you love. Just go to impactfashionnyc.com slash survey. Again, that's impactfashionnyc.com slash survey. And thank you so much in advance.